I'd like to share a myth, a story that tries to capture something about theology. This myth is based on biblical text, but it certainly ain't scripture. This myth is informed by historical research, but I'm not claiming that this is what the biblical authors meant in their day, in their context, to their audience. I'd like to think that this myth says some truth about God in the world, but there's no capital T truth here. No ultimate reality. It's, it's a fable. It's a metaphor. But it isn't just a fable. It isn't just a metaphor. Because myths and fables and metaphors and legends have meaning. And it's a form of communication that religion excels at. So, let's talk about Satan. I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of God's wrath. I remember my affliction and my wandering. The bitterness and the gall, I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Welcome to the Broken Book Podcast. We're your hosts, Amanda and Sam. And we're ready again this week to appreciate, dissect, criticize, defend, and generally nerd out about the Bible. I love Eden and other biblical images of early creation. People are working together. God and Jesus are both united and next to each other and creating together. And the spirit hovers over the water. The lady of divine wisdom shapes the world and its order. Yahweh tames Leviathan, and the the first humans serve the land and name the animals. And to name something is consistently a divine action in scripture. So humans were doing God's work when they named the animals. So divinity seems plural yet unified. It was a beautiful garden, and there was lots of shameless nudity and love and worry-free sex, and it's wonderful, and it's a moment of heaven. But the snake changes everything. The snake introduces a new concept, a suggestion, a lie. He says that humans should try to be like God. Bam! That's it. That changes everything. Suddenly, it's a competition. Suddenly, it's a hierarchy. Humans should be jealous of God. God isn't a parent. God is competition. We should want authority because authority is better than us. God is better than the Word, who is better than the Spirit, who is better than wisdom, who is better than the angels, who are better than the humans, who are better than the animals, who are better than the plants. All the way to the lowest, the snake. The lowest in the hierarchy. The the description of Adam's curse at its core sounds like a description of capitalism and patriarchy. The basic assumption that some things are better and deserve better than others. And that's the snake's lie. Sure, God sentences the snake to be the lowest of all creatures. But it's too late. The damage has already been done. By condemning the snake... God himself buys into Satan's lie. From now on, the universe is a competition. In the West, this dominant philosophical concept is often called the great chain of being. The basic gist is that some objects are more real than other objects, 
And the more real you are, the more deserving you are. So the gods are fundamentally more real than humans, which is why gods are feasting immortals and humans starve and die. When a hero like Hercules becomes a god, he is moving higher up on the chain. When someone gets sold into slavery, they move lower on the chain. This chain is not simply an attitude or a subconsciously assumed cultural bias. This chain was science. Literally, if you look at the greatest scientific work of the ancients, this chain is the starting presupposition. For example, the earliest extant books on biology are lists ordering the hierarchy, the importance of various animals and plants. Now, let's get one thing clear right now. This chain is total bullshit. One physical object is not more real than any other physical object. And the same goes for ideas. Someone might be, say, better at math than someone else, but that does not give them a higher degree of personhood or existence. Also, there is an implied zero-sum game in the great chain of being, where the higher up you are, the lower other objects are, and vice versa. So you push other people down to move yourself up. The goal is to hurt your neighbors to help yourself. The chain is the snake's lie, and through this lie, the snake takes over the world. The chain is used to justify government, because kings are fundamentally more real, better than other humans. Rich people are fundamentally more real, better than poorer humans. Males are fundamentally more real, better than females. The ideal, proper, most real platonic form of a human is male. So women, they're just cheap knockoffs. Scripture calls Satan the god of this world. And the snake is the one with coercive authority on this planet. And the chain is his weapon. And to follow the chain to believe you are greater than some and less than others. That's what sin is. Sin is chain worship. And every single sin reinforces the chain. And we are born into this original sin, this chain, because we are pre-sorted by birth into our proper place on the chain, into our proper spot on the hierarchy. In Ephesians, Colossians, Revelation, and various Gnostic texts, Satan's dominions are called the powers and principalities, and they are located in the stars. Because in the Greco-Roman culture, the stars represent fate, destiny, what cannot be changed. The stars are held up by opaque crystalline structures. These structures are the literal chains. These stars tell us how we are going to live. These stars, this fate, is more powerful than the wills of the gods. And it makes such, such profound sense to correlate the snake's power with fate, with fatalism. Because massive portions of our lives 
are spoon-fed to us by our position on the chain, and the chain punishes objects that don't fit into their proper place. We are forced to hurt those below us and serve those above us. We are forced to push others down to push us up. That's how we can function. That's the only way we can function in our Satan culture. The snake makes us sin. The devil makes us do it. We don't have totally individualistic choice to sin. And we can't completely blame ourselves for this because we don't have totally individualistic choice to sin. The chain forces us to reinforce the chain because sin is systemic, not personal. Sin is a society-wide operation, not a choice. A lot of the Old Testament is trapped in the chains. Like, why are the Israelites morally outraged when the Ammonites genocide them? But they are totally okay genociding the Ammonites right back. Why does it not occur to them that they should treat other people how they want to be treated themselves? Well, that's because the Israelites are better and more real than the Ammonites. An Ammonite life is worth far less than an Israelite life. So the act of genociding the Israelites is wrong. But the act of genociding the Ammonites, that's okay. Scientifically, it's a very different action on the great chain of being. Deuteronomistic retributive justice can get so scary because of the chain. If suffering is punishment, that means that people who are low on the chain deserve punishment because of God's justice. We see this belief debated in the book of Job. What's, but what's interesting about the Old Testament isn't so much how it reinforces the chain, but how it sometimes breaks the chain. Ruth refuses to accept the place Satan has placed her as a widow and a Moabite, and her marriage corrupts and rusts the chain. Likewise, Moses, Isaiah, and so many other prophets see themselves as unworthy, which means that they have accepted their place. Someone with a speech impediment isn't supposed to be a prophet. Moses is supposed to be less real, less worthy than Aaron. God chooses to reject this hypothesis. But for much of the Old Testament, the chain is accepted, especially in the earliest pre-exilic texts. As I've referenced earlier, two theological assumptions reign supreme. One, the Israelites are God's chosen people and will thus dominate everyone else. And two, God rewards the good and punishes the wicked. Both of these assumptions rely on the chain. It assumes that the Israelites are better, more worthy of existence than anyone else, and that the good people are better, more worthy of existence than anyone else. God makes this assumption concrete with the temple. The temple is the physical proof that God lives with Judah, and Jerusalem can never be destroyed. God will always protect the righteous. God will always save their people. The Davidic line will always reign. 
And every bit of that falls apart because the Babylonians conquered Judah, sacked Jerusalem, captured the king, and destroyed the temple. The covenant breaks. God's promises break. The old religion is proven false almost on a scientific level. It's just wrong. And it's awful. It's terrible. And a lot of people die. Miserable situation. But one weird good thing happens. The Babylonian exile weakens the chain. The Babylonian exile makes the Judeans start to question the idea that life is a competition and creation is a hierarchy. This questioning of the chain is where the Bible and the Judeo-Christian tradition really begins. As we've described at length in this podcast before, we see the chain breaking in Lamentations, which is written right after the temple is destroyed. The author of Lamentations submits to the chain at first. The author admits how awful Judah has been and how pathetic his people are before God. It's pure chain logic. God is big. So puny, sinful humans must be so small in comparison. But as the book progresses, the author gets angrier and angrier until he lashes out. Humans do not deserve this kind of treatment. So Lamentations points out just how stupid the chain is. The very idea that the people who are hurting are the ones who deserve more hurt is just, it, it's so repulsive. And in, in my eyes, I see the light of God breaking through to the author of Lamentations here. The author sees a little glimpse of a world without the chain. Basically, the author sees heaven and, and maybe that's what's described at the center of Lamentations 3, when the author imagines what a better God could look like. And a few decades later, the author of Second Isaiah listens to the cries of the book of Lamentations. Isaiah quotes Lamentations, and Isaiah addresses Lamentations, and Isaiah agrees with Lamentations. People who suffer are not lesser beings. And Isaiah crafts a new narrative, the songs of the suffering servant. The suffering servant is despised and rejected by humanity, a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. But God does not see this miserable human being as lesser. Instead, God elevates and praises the servant. That elevation and praise directly violates the chain. The, the suffering servant is arguably the most supernatural passage of the Old Testament. Miracles, visions, that was accepted by the science of the time. But the notion that someone who was lowly could be exalted? That's bullshit. That's superstition. But second Isaiah heard the plea in Lamentations, and he prophesies what a hero against the chains could look like. And that prophecy is the hope that inspires Jesus Christ, who takes on the mantle of the suffering servant, who breaks the chains by showing us the truth, the truth 
that the snake is a false god, that we are trapped by his sin, and we can be saved if we believe in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a world which is free from the great chain of being. Jesus shares the divine secret that the chain is a lie. We do not have to believe in it. Now, Satan will still have power and authority because everyone else still believes in the chain. But just because Satan silences us or marginalizes us or kills us does not mean that we are less real or more real than anyone else. Jesus, as the historical Christ, attacked the fundamental notions that held up the chains. The Roman worldview thought rich people were higher on the chain, and Jesus rejects wealth. The Pharisee and Sadducee worldviews thought pure people were higher on the chain, so Jesus hangs out with lepers and menstruating women. Everybody thought their nation was better than every other nation, so Jesus shares his spiritual blessings with Gentiles. Jesus shares the power to forgive sins in honor only given to God in his tradition. He shares that divine right with a bunch of fishermen who then share it with everyone else. We all have the power to forgive sins. That is a gift that Jesus gives to humans that originally just belonged to God. So very early Christianity challenges local and political chains. And as the church matures, it challenges cosmic chains. The idea that God comes to earth as a human, but God was not defiled by that. If that concept is true, then there is no chain. Because that means that God can still be God while lower on the chain. Wait, 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 there's more. Because God dies. God goes underground. God descends into hell, the very bottom of the chain. Through Jesus, God exists on every layer of the chain now, from the highest to the lowest, from the first to the last. Hierarchy is broken. God is everywhere. And God is not less real or less important because they lived in Galilee or went to hell. So the great chain of being is the myth that died on Calvary. And for a short time, the church was a place of heaven. The chains weren't there. The bishops would wash the feet of the peasants. And feet back then were really smelly and really dirty. So that's, that's, that's quite an action. Slaves and women could lead congregations. The whole, in Jesus Christ there is no Jew or Greek, slave or master, male or female, all of that is present. And I know why some people don't like that passage. In a modern context, it sounds like toxic colorblindness and genderblindness, which is a demonic act that reinforces the snake chain. But that context is gibberish in the ancient world. Colorblindness is only an issue when people don't believe that the chain is scientific truth. In context, the verse says that to be in Christ 
is to deny that some people are better and more real than other people. And contextually from various epistles, it seems that this verse was the original creed of the Christian church. This is what Paul first learned when he studied with the disciples in Jerusalem. This is what the church was teaching just three years after the crucifixion. But time passes, and the snake is smart, probably smarter than the New Testament gives him credit for, because slowly he weaved his way into Christian circles and formed new chains to replace the broken ones. The early church was afraid of persecution, so they became less radical in their politics. They encouraged discretion. And by the beginning of the second century, they forged a Pauline epistle to get women out of leadership positions. Having women in leadership was just too scandalous. And that was a sinful, compelled, tragic act of survival. It was a new chain Jesus then became so revered that his humanity became less and less relevant. Jesus stopped being at all places on the chain and is now placed higher than humanity on a new chain level. And more time passes and the second coming doesn't happen and the church grows and it no longer feels like Christians are on a rescue mission for the world. They are just another sect who think that they're better than anyone else, more real, more worthy than anyone else. Their righteousness puts them higher on the chain. Due to the the spread of Greek philosophy, Jesus's humanity is almost totally separated from his divinity. The human Jesus becomes a separate person from the divine Jesus. And now Jesus as an entity is conveniently not breaking chains at all. Jesus becomes the symbol of the status quo. And eventually Christianity takes over the Roman Empire. And at this point, Christianity is just another way to classify some people as better than other people. And the snake wins. Oh, oh. And God changes too. God grows more and more and more powerful. God becomes all-powerful, omnipotent. And, And medieval omnipotence is different from evangelical omnipotence. God can't just do anything. No, God is directly responsible for everything. God has all the agency. God is totally coercive. God completely controls all of our actions and everything that happens in reality. By the time of Calvin, Satan as a character does not actually have any agency at all. Satan, the snake, is actually a minion of God who does God's dirty work. Christianity and its God are no longer in any way the underdogs fighting against powerful evil. Evil is just another realm of God. Now, I know I'm a huge fan of melodrama, and this will all feel gloriously melodramatic, but I think you see the general point I'm making. 
Satan sneaked his way onto God's throne and started impersonating Jesus. And so many people worship Satan and reinforce his chains. Of course, things are a little different now. Pre-modernism moved into modernism, and the chain stopped being literal and scientific. So people started thinking up new pseudoscientific reasons to reinforce the chains. The chains are just metaphorical now, but they're still just as powerful as they ever were. And we make up new chains, chains like race, to let us say that some people are better, more real than others. And the chain still traps us, but a lot of people don't recognize it or literally believe in it, so they ignore it when they should fight against it. It's that old movie quote, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making us think he doesn't exist. I have this awful image of Jesus in my head, bound and gagged and trapped in the great chain of being, seeing his message used for the opposite of his intentions, seeing a world just as in need of salvation as it always has been. But the light of God still gets through sometimes, and always has throughout history. The good news the gospel of freedom gets rediscovered by someone or some group every generation. And goodness, the light still comes out of it. And honest, positive truths do come from the historical church. Because Satan is incapable of turning his lie into ultimate reality and truth. Radical Christianity has to be led from the margins, from the outcasts. Because their very existence, their very power, defies the chains. A black body is less real, less important on the great chain of being. A trans identity is less real, less important on the great chain of being. A Muslim soul, an immigrant laborer, a person with a pre-existing condition is less real, less important on the great chain of being. The way we fight the snake and reveal the gospel is by rejecting sin and following people who are supposed to be lesser somehow to elevate the suffering servants. On a very personal level, I've been having so much trouble getting my shit together lately. I've been going through hard, isolated times, thanks to mental illness. And I could say that this is due to anxiety and depression and being on the autistic spectrum. And all of that's kind of true, but only kind of. I can function and work through my anxiety and depression usually. I know intellectually that I can make it through. What stops me is that I think I am a failure that I know anxiety and depression will haunt me and that I've always failed in the past so I don't really try. I just don't do anything at all. I just give up. What I'm saying is what hurts me most is not the disease itself, but the belief I have that I am less real, less worthy a person because of it. Now, Jesus may not be able to heal my symptoms, but his gift, his grace, his secret, his truth is what can set me free from the chain that's holding me back. 
set me free from my sins. Because in reality, I am not a failure. In reality, a person being a failure is a silly concept from prehistorical science. It's just some BS, some snake made up to sell us apples. But in this Satan chain world that I was born into, I will not earn a living and I will not fulfill any of my goals. That is already written into my fate. That is in the stars. I can see myself in a homeless shelter, but I can't see myself living a decent life. But if I have faith, faith in the real world, faith in the kingdom of heaven, faith in Jesus Christ, I can make it out. I can reject fate and live in freedom. By faith, we say no to the lie. We refuse to see ourselves as lesser. We refuse to push people who are different from us down. With faith, we can put our energies into what we actually care about rather than trying to climb up some arbitrary, sinful standard of success. So, so here's the good news of the gospel. Chains are bullshit. So we can liberate God. We can set Jesus free. Satan might still have power, but it's a fake power, a lie power. God stands and we stand for a real freedom, a real equality, and a real truth. I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of God's wrath. I remember my affliction and my wandering. The bitterness and the gall, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain without pity. You have covered yourself with clouds that no prayer can get through. You have made a scum and refuse among the nations. All our enemies have opened their mouths wide against us. We have suffered terror and pitfalls, ruin, destruction. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. My eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees.